Please turn your attention to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. Let me read this for us, and then we'll spend some time meditating on it together. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you this morning asking that you would nourish us and feed us and challenge us and comfort us from your word through your spirit. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In this season, we're going through the second half of the Gospel of Mark, journeying with Christ to the cross, and this journey will take us right up to Easter. And if you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that we are in a section where Jesus has this growing conflict with the Sanhedrin, the 70-member ruling body over Judaism based in Jerusalem. And they've been sending delegations to Jesus to ask him hard questions that will trip him up and discredit him and undermine his authority. Political questions like, should we pay taxes to Caesar? It was a very explosive political question in that day. Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Theological questions. Jesus, how can you believe in a resurrection from the dead? Not everyone believed that. And this morning, a legal question. Of all the commandments, Jesus, which is the most important? The questioner this morning is not a Pharisee or a Sadducee, but a scribe, a teacher, an expert of the law. This morning, I'd like to consider this legal question. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? And consider Jesus' answer. To understand where this question comes from, consider a time when you were bewildered by complexity and you needed someone to simplify it for you. Here's an example. I'll take you a number of years back to when Tina and I were preparing for our first daughter to be born in this world and we were putting together a baby registry and we went to Babies R Us. I don't know if those still exist. Not really. These baby superstores. And we went in and we were completely unprepared for what was going to face us. First thing we saw was a whole wall of bottles of all different shapes, sizes, styles. I had no idea what kind of bottle I needed. And then we found ourselves in a section of baby strollers, and they were baby strollers of all sizes, brands, models, big wheels, small wheels. And again, I thought, I, I have no idea what I need. Baby gadgets, equipment. We, we walked around in that store in a daze for 15 minutes and we left without picking out anything because we just had no idea what to choose. And then we discovered a little book. I don't know if it still exists. I don't know if it's still popular, but it made all the difference. It was called Baby Bargains. 
And uh, some wise, experienced parents says, here, this, this book might really help you. And it really did. It simplified this whole complex world. This, this little book, was, which was street-level wisdom of experienced parents, of what you need and what you don't need. The brands are reliable and the brands are not so reliable. And it just simplified this whole complex world. Suddenly, we could go into Babies R Us and know exactly, we need this bottle, we need this stroller. Um, and it made all the difference. Here comes a scribe to Jesus asking him to simplify the complex world of God's commands. Those days, Jewish rabbis counted 613 commands in the Torah, 365 prohibitions, 248 positive commands. And in, in evaluating these commands, they commonly distinguished between heavy and light commands. That is, those which struck at the fundamentals of a person's life and those with, that made less demands on a person's life. It was not uncommon to ask respected teachers which are the most important commandments? How would you summarize the Torah commandments in a nutshell? For example, a Gentile came to Rabbi Hillel, apparently, and promised him that he would convert if the rabbi could give him the whole Torah in a sentence. And Rabbi Hillel's famous response was a negative version of the golden rule. What you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the entire Torah. Everything else is interpretation. Go and learn it. See, when you have 613 commandments, it is inevitable that you want to have these conversations and discussions about which commandments have priority. Well, what's a convenient summary of these commandments? It was a common discussion among Jewish rabbis of the day. So this question from the scribe is not all that surprising, especially when he sees how, Jesus, how wisely Jesus has answered all the questions posed to him. He says, so Jesus... Of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus answers this. The most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus answers this question with more than the questioner asks, typical of Jesus. He gives not one commandment, but two commandments. There are only seven verses, but they're some of the most important verses in Scripture. Jesus says so, that these are the most important commandments. These are not peripheral. The discussion here is not a theological abstraction. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? The questions are important. Jesus communicates the two most important commandments here. And I think we can learn three things. I think Jesus is teaching us three things through what he says here. What God wants for us, why we need a Savior, and how we can please God. What, God's wants, what God wants for us, how, why we need a Savior, and how we can please God. First, what God wants for us. After Jesus identifies these two commandments, he says something staggering. He says, there is no commandment greater than these. In the corollary passage in Matthew, he says, all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. As a way of saying they're not any more important Commandments in Scripture than these. Commandments, I remind you, are not arbitrary rules. Some people take these commandments as arbitrary rules by which God just wants to make our life a little harder. They're not arbitrary rules. God's commandments in Scripture are expressions of his own moral nature, which means that if these are the two greatest commandments, we are hearing God's heartbeat here. God's heartbeat for us is to learn to love him and to love our neighbor. 
These two commandments summarize the Ten Commandments, also a summary of God's moral nature and and his uh, moral commands. The first four commandments are all about loving God, having no other gods before us, making no graven images, not taking his name in vain. All are about loving God. That's the overall category. And the second, uh, the last six commandments are all about, no surprise, loving our neighbor, honoring our parents, not murdering, not committing adultery are all ways that we love our neighbor. So all the commands in Scripture, Jesus is saying, boil down to these two. Either they're in the category of learning to love God or the category of learning to love our neighbor. There is, I think, an important balance between these two commandments. Imagine if Jesus said only one. Imagine if Jesus says the only commandment that's important is loving God. You know, we think about that, and I think we'd all become mystical monks. We'd all go into our prayer closet and never come out. We'd all pull out of the world and just focus on our our relationship with God because that's all that matters. Likewise, if Jesus said the only commandment that matters is loving our neighbor, we'd all become human activists. We'd all throw throw all of our energy into the one thing that matters, serving our our, uh, fellow humans. It doesn't matter like a relationship with God. It's it's activism. It's, It's volunteer hours. That's all that counts. But Jesus says it's both. It's both loving God and loving our neighbor. It's both the vertical dimension of life and the horizontal. It's not either or, it's a both and. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologians and pastors in America back in the 1700s, preached a sermon once on 1 Corinthians Corinthians 13, which he entitled, Heaven, a World of Love. Heaven, a World of Love. I love that title. It communicates that heaven is going to be a world of love. And Edward says in that sermon, heaven is a world of love. For God is the fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of life. And therefore the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love. As the sun placed in the midst of the visible heavens in a clear day fills the world with light. My friends, because God is a fountain of love, Jonathan Edwards goes on to say in this sermon that streams of love will fill heaven. Love between God and the inhabitants of heaven and between the inhabitants themselves. Heaven will be a world of love. It will be an ocean of love and will be lost in it. That's what God wants for us, a world of love. Tom Holland is a British historian of the ancient world. In 2019, he wrote a book entitled Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. I don't know if Tom Holland is a Christian or not, but he makes the case that despite the fact that the West is turning away from Christianity, it remains saturated by Christian assumptions. And in this book, he shows how our morals and ethics are not rooted in some sort of universal ethics and morals, but they're rooted very much in the seedbed of Christianity. So, for example, in a chapter on love, he reflects on how two major movements in the 1960s have their roots in the seedbed of Christianity. The Civil Rights Movement and the Beatles. (laughs) First, the Civil Rights Movement. Martin Luther King was a black pastor. He preached sermons in which he said things like this. These are his words. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command of Jesus to love our neighbor is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. Yes, it is love that will save our world and our civilization, even love for enemies. 
And uh, we know uh, Martin Luther King's words, all his challenges about the civil rights were rooted in biblical truth, clothed in biblical imagery. The civil rights movement was very much rooted in, therefore, Christian truth and Christian categories. How about the Beatles, you say? Well, Holland points out that even the Beatles, who were not re religious at all, very much swam in the waters flowing from the headwaters of Christianity. They sang, all you need is love. Who taught them that? Paul McCartney said, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? Which is very much a Christian, quest a Christian question. In 1985, Paul McCartney signed on to participate in Live Aid, which was then the world's largest concert at the time to relieve famine in Ethiopia. What did he learn that loving our neighbors on the other side of the globe is an important and valuable thing to do? Tom Holland points out that even John Lennon, who was a self-professed atheist, wrote, imagine his longing for global peace. You know the words. He began singing very atheist words. Imagine there's no heaven, no hell below us. But Holland points out that the lyrics after that are religious through and through, dreaming of a better world and the brotherhood of man. Holland says, in the dreams of universal peace, Lennon's atheism was recognizably bred of Christian marrow. My friends, we live in a world that longs for love. We long to live in a world that is filled with love. And that's why we, we, when we see videos of a young black man beaten by five black police officers in Memphis, we cry out in outrage and lament. And we say the world is not supposed to be like this. I think we know innately that we are created for a world of love. We are created to, to love our neighbor. What explains that? Not naturalism. We, we don't just say that love is a biochemical reaction that, that contributes to our natural selection. We say it, it's more than that. Secularism doesn't teach this. It doesn't teach us to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others. I would suggest that our longing for love, our longing for a world filled with love, is evidence that we're made by a God of love who has created us to love him and to love our neighbor. That's what God wants for us. Secondly, I think these commandments show us why we need a savior. See, why, why, why do we need a savior? When, just at, at the general level, when do you recognize your need for a savior? Well, it's when you realize that there's something that you can't do by yourself. We know we need a savior when we can't reach a standard. We need some help to reach a standard. And that, that, my friends, is why it's so hard for us to admit our need for a savior, because we don't like to admit our need for help. We don't like to admit that we're falling short and that we can't get there on our own. But I think these two commandments, if explored deeply, show us why we need a savior. Look at this first commandment. What does this command to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength mean? It means that our hearts will be filled with a genuine affection for God. Not just outward religious actions, but a genuine heart of affection for God. That we genuinely delight in God. We, we treasure him, we cherish him. One of the most powerful metaphors for a relationship with God in scripture is a marriage relationship. God is the husband to his people. It's a powerful metaphor. The, the, the marriage relationship is the most powerful an intimate human relationship there is. What husband would be satisfied with a wife who is only willing to 
outwardly be a wife. Her heart is not filled with genuine affection for her husband. What, what husband would be satisfied with that? None would. God, as our, as our husband, is not satisfied with outward shows of really religiosity without a heart of genuine affection for him. God calls not just for part of our hearts, but all of our hearts. He, he wants to be our number one delight, our number one treasure, our number one joy. He wants to be uppermost in our affections. And he wants us to love him with all of our faculties, with all our hearts and all our minds and all our souls and all of our strength. This call to love God is with, with genuine affection above all else with, with everything that we have. And the evaluative question is, who does this? Who, looking at their own heart, does this consistently? Romans 3.10 says, no one is righteous. No one seeks God on our own. We don't even seek God, much less love him. We all fall short. All of us are not good enough to keep this command on our own. And then secondly, look at what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. And given this command, Jesus is assuming that we love ourselves. He is assuming that we have no problems loving ourselves and seeking our own well-being. We have no problems feeding ourselves well, buying ourselves nice clothes, finding comfortable homes, spending money on ourselves. We have no problems doing that. And the way we do those, the way we love ourselves is with energy, with alacrity, with enthusiasm, we'll go out and buy what we need and go searching for what we need. And so this command you begin to see is very radical. It's the call to love our neighbors the same way we love ourselves, with the same things and the same spirit, with alacrity, enthusiasm, and energy. This is a call to live in a completely other-centered way. And again, the evaluative question here is, who does this? Who loves their neighbor this way? Let me make it more practical. Who loves their spouse this way consistently, doing what's best for them, not what's best for you, with all the energy you have and enthusiasm and alacrity? Who loves their siblings this way? Your brother or your sister? You see, through these two commandments, we come face to face with our own sin our moral inability to love God as we ought and to love our neighbor as we ought. And this is one of the purposes of commandments in Scripture, to show us our sin and lead us to Christ. Because if we never see our sin, we'll never recognize our need for a Savior. Perhaps you can think of it this way. I like to think that I'm in decent physical shape. I mean, I, I feel pretty good. Um, I've always liked sports. I've always embraced being an active person. In my mind, it's not too hard to think, you know, I can do all the things that I did when I was 30. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really the same person as I was in my 30s. My, my clothes still fit. I haven't given up too many loops on my, on my belt. I, it's easy to convince myself that I'm in, in decent physical shape. But what would convince me that I'm not quite as in good shape as I think? I think this would convince me if I were to go on a run with Pastor Brad. <laughs> Pastor Brad is not here this morning, so I can talk about it. <laughs> Brad, if you didn't know, is a very good runner. And so if I went on a run with Pastor Brad, I think I would keep up with him for a few hundred yards, maybe. And then I quickly realize that I am not quite in the sh good shape that I think I am. And that's why I don't run with Pastor Brad. 
That's why I'm much happier with my own subjective sense of good shape. It's very easy to convince myself that I'm in pretty good shape and I'm happy with that. But I think it's possible to do the same thing with our sin and our need for a savior. To convince ourselves that we're good people by our own subjective standards. Yeah, I'm a good person. I'm not perfect. I mean, no one's perfect. I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty good person, especially when I look over at those people. I'm a pretty good person. I'm not bad. But if you want to see your need for a savior, hold yourself up to a standard. The true standard, a holy standard, God's standard. Take this one, loving your neighbor as yourself, which I think everyone would say, that's a good thing to do. We should do that. Loving your neighbor with all the energy and enthusiasm and alacrity that you love yourself with, your spouse, your siblings, your brothers, your sisters. And suddenly, the thing that everyone agrees is a good thing no one can do. And we realize that we need a savior. So thirdly, and lastly, how then can we please God? Let me tell you about John Wesley. John Wesley was a founder of the Methodist Church. When he was an undergraduate at Oxford, he joined a group called the Holy Club dedicated to the pursuit of a holy life. This group would pray, study the Greek New Testament together, participate in devotional exercises. John Wesley himself, personally, set aside an hour each day for private prayer and reflection. He took Holy Communion each week. He fasted twice a week, visited the prisons, assisted the poor and the sick. In 1735, he accepted a call to become a missionary to the American Indians in Georgia, and it was a complete disaster. When he, he faced uh, conflicts with his colleagues, he almost died of disease, and so when he returned to England, he wrote this in his journal. I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? John Wesley, in other words, did all those things, all those religious things, and he wasn't even a Christian. It's possible to please God. Or it's possible to, to, to think we're pleasing God just by being, uh, being religious, but that's, it's, it, it, that doesn't work. We can't please God just by being religious because it's possible to be religious without even loving God. John Wesley is the example. This teacher of the law is an example. He's a religious leader. He's an expert in Scripture. And yet he's not in the kingdom. It's possible to grow up in the church and not really love God. It's possible to be theologically trained and not really love God. It's possible to be an expert in scripture and not really love God. It's possible to be very close to the kingdom and have a lot of Christian friends, but not really love God. Being religious is no substitute for loving God. We can outwardly serve God without loving God. Tim Keller, in one of his books, tells this apocryphal story. Jesus one day says to his disciples, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. Doesn't give any explanation, so the disciples all look around for a stone to carry. Peter, being very practical, seeks out the smallest stone he can possibly find because, after all, he just didn't specify weight and size. So he puts a small little pebble in his pocket, and Jesus then says, follow me. And he leads them on a journey. About noontime, Jesus says, everyone sit down, and he waves his hands, and all the stones turn into bread. 
And he says, now it's time for lunch. And a few bites, Peter is all done with his lunch. After lunch, Jesus tells them to stand up, and he says again, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. And this time, Peter says, aha, I get it. He looks around and sees a small boulder. He hoists it on his back, and it's painful. It makes him stagger, but he says to himself, I can't wait for supper. Jesus says, follow me. He leads them on a journey with Peter barely being able to keep up. Around supper, Jesus leads them to the side of a river, and he says, now everyone throw your stones into the water. And they do. And then he says, follow me, and he begins to walk. And Peter looks at Jesus dumbfounded, and, and Jesus sighs and says, don't you remember what I asked you to do? Who are you carrying the stone for? It's possible to serve God, not because we love God, but because we love ourselves. It's possible to serve God and make him the means to our own end and not the end. So then the question is, how can we please God with a genuine heart of love? I think there's a hint at the end of the passage. The teacher of the law says something to Jesus that makes him respond and say, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're halfway there. What is it? What does the teacher of the law say? Verse 33, he says, to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus says, you're halfway there. So this scribe has an important insight. He says that loving God and loving our neighbor is, is not just more important. The word is actually far more important. That's, the, that's the, the truer translation. Far more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And I would suggest to you that those are remarkable words. This scribe is demoting the whole system upon which he's built his life. Burnt offerings and sacrifices. He is recognizing that this system of religion is not enough. That he'll never satisfy God through his own efforts of burnt offerings and sacrifices and law-keeping. That's not enough. You can't love God and, neighbor, and love your neighbor on your own strength. And my friends, that's the first step to the kingdom, is admitting your need. Admitting your insufficiency. Admitting the insufficiency of human effort, it is, that it's not enough. See, we never take the step of admitting our need, we'll never come to Jesus. We'll too be too busy offering our own burnt offerings and sacrifices to God, making ourselves pleasing to God. See, the first step is recognizing that burnt offerings and our obedience and law-keeping can never save us. The second step is recognizing that only Christ can save us. Christ is the perfect sacrifice that makes all other sacrifices absolute. When we come to Jesus, we recognize that it is his obedience that saves us, not our obedience. It's his life and death that makes us pleasing to God. What saves us is not a law, but a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And that's why the scribe is so close to the kingdom of God, because he's face to face with Jesus, his Savior. And he just needs to recognize that. And when we come to Jesus as our Savior, and we put our faith in him as our perfect sacrifice, his death on the cross is the thing that forgives us of our sins and makes us pleasing to God. Then suddenly, what gives birth in our hearts is this deep love for God. Jesus did this for me. 
Jesus was crucified on a cross for me. Jesus suffered for my sake. And what gives birth in our hearts is a deep love for God and a deep love for our neighbor. If Christ did this for me when I didn't deserve it, how can I do things for others? If Jesus was my good Samaritan when I was lying on the side of the road and he came and picked me up and healed me, what can I do for others? How can we please God? Through repentance and faith. Through understanding our own need and insufficiency and, and putting our faith in Jesus Christ as a perfect sacrifice for our sins and coming to him and enabling him to give us a new heart of love for God and for our neighbors. On May 24, 1738, something memorable happened to John Wesley. He opened his Bible randomly that afternoon and came across this verse in Mark 12, 34, which should sound familiar to you. You are not far from the kingdom of God. John Wesley read that verse and was reassured that he was headed in the right direction. That evening, he recorded in his journal what happened. He says, I went very unwillingly to society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. John Wesley was converted that evening. And the change that came over Wesley after his conversion is well recorded by historians. He became a tireless preacher. He preached 42,000 sermons over the rest of his life. He traveled an average of 60 to 70 miles a day, 4,500 miles a year. He preached on average three sermons a day and founded the Methodist Church. At age 83, he wrote in his diary, I am a wonder to myself. I am never tired either with preaching, writing, or traveling. After his conversion, John Wesley was a transformed man with a heart of love for God and for his neighbor. My friends, God has created us for a world of love, for him and for those around us. The way we enter this world is by admitting that our obedience and sacrifice and law-keeping will never be enough and repenting of our sins and putting our faith in Jesus Christ and turning to him for his perfect sacrifice and his obedience that saves us. And when we come to Christ, he will transform our hearts that we might have a genuine affection for God and for our neighbor. Not as a way to earn God's love, but as a response to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come face to face with our own moral inability when we come to your commands. In particular, this command to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. We come before you acknowledging that we can't do this on our own. We have, don't have the moral ability to obey this fully on our own. Lord, we come to Christ 
Thank you that we are made pleasing before you, not by our own obedience, but by his. And we pray that you transform our hearts by your Holy Spirit and make them new. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.